Come on. Lefley, this is George G, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Dr. Douglas Brackman. Dr. Doug, are you ready to do this? I am ready. I'm excited to have you back on the show. Doug is a psychologist. He's specializing in helping highly driven individuals take back control of their lives. He is the author of Driven. It is understanding and harnessing the genetic gifts shared by entrepreneurs, Navy SEALs, pro athletes, and maybe you. Doug, excited to have you back on. Tell us a little about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to be back. I, I Going deeper <laughs> is something that I think part of our personality. We love to... Um, yeah, being accused of being so intense when I was a kid you know, and trying to lighten up and not take life so freaking serious. Um, really good advice, but uh, going deep on this stuff is is my passion and has been for years and years and years. So looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, I am. Um, I told you when we were uh, just getting started, uh, you were one of our, our featured authors for our book club. And then I had the opportunity to actually read the book. Probably should have read it beforehand, Doug, but you know, <laughs> anyway, but had the opportunity to, to, to read it. And so much of it, all of it really resonated with me. And it was everything that we had talked about, how for people who are um, this, give or take seven to 10% of the population, um, it's an operating manual. And I definitely found that to be the case. So really, really enjoyed it. Something that really stuck out for me, uh, certainly a lot of things, um, I guess I'll, I'll start by just saying that I hate when people ask me what, what do you do for a living? And it's sort of, I, I, I never really like to think that I am this thing that I earn a living doing. And you touch on that in, in the book. Yeah. And it, it, it's so I'm a psychologist for 30 years now. And what gets people to walk into my office is this underlying chronic feeling that there's something missing or wrong with them. And that, that's this, this core sense of um, always feeling like we could do something better. And that's really this, this, the reward systems of the driven. And a byproduct of that, <laughs> this is something the last three years I've been very passionate about, is the differences in identity between people who have our brain structure and who have, you know, the normal brain structure, the 95 percenters. Um, the biggest difference is this hypofrontality versus normal frontal lobe activity. Big, long, you know, explanations there not needed. Very simply, farmers, those that are wired for a very predictable linear world, have a corresponding identity predictable, linear <laughs> butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, you know, so they, they went from these hunter gatherer groups of 40, 60, 80 of us into these massive societies. Job specialization was the natural kind of evolution. Most people's identities went along with that. And so people walk into my office that have our wiring 
And it's like, I don't relate to being a psychologist. I'm a cultural anthropologist. I'm a biologist. I'm a, you know, statistician. I'm all of these different things. And none of them really define me. If I'm born into a society where that's not normal, (laughs) combined with this inner deep feeling that there's something missing or wrong all the time, what I have found personally and professionally is that, you know, most of the Germans come into my office feeling like they're just lost, feeling like they're, you know, the imposter syndrome. Because I've got, I've had the PhDs, I have the accolades, I have the things hanging on my wall, and yet I still feel like there's something more I should be doing. And that identity piece is, is, you know, the quickest path to hell for a driven individual is trying to figure out who we are. Because it is an esoteric, wacky dance into, (laughs) there's no right answer. There is no final answer. And so for a driven that has this multi-thinking brain combined with this weird identity kind of, you know, Da Vinci-based identity where we're, you know, we are both sculptors and artisans and creators and poets and writers and all of these things. We're not just one thing. And so what we have to do if you're driven is really shift that identity from a who, very simply, into a what. I like it. Shift from who to a what. So it's it's so the who versus the what very it's it's a very simple concept and i intend it that way because drivens our brains love to complicate this but very simply the who is this weird esoteric kind of undiffused weird soul concept that there's something more to me than just the the brain and the body um, there may be, but it's impossible to define, which leaves the drivens and this deep inner feeling that there's something missing or wrong unanswered. And so, as I say in my book, chapter five about shame, people have walked into my office, you know, earnestly with a hundred percent confidence telling me that they want to kill themselves. And my response is yes, finally great. Awesome. I will will show you how, because it's just, you know, what, what the hell are you talking about? The body, the pain that I feel, the narratives of stories about me, what are you actually trying to get rid of? And that hopefully can shock somebody into this present moment awareness that who we are is a ridiculous path to hell. Simply what we are. And what I am is an animal. What I am is a homo sapien. Squirrels, cats, dogs, monkeys, whatever, we're just another one of animals on God's green earth. That is clear. We can't argue that. And because of that, we can do some very simple biological assessments, understanding our central nervous system. And then it it gives us the opportunity to stop these looping narratives about how I'm broken and feel broken. Therefore, I am broken because look at all the broken shit I've done. And you tie that to this 
the identity piece in the present, you know, what I am is very simply what I am doing in the present moment. If we're driven, sitting on a cushion, doing nothing, no thing, what is the point of meditation is to not have a point. And so literally when we're sitting in Zazen or sitting in meditation, I am nothing. I am just breathing. And yeah, but what about my body? What if my body's so dysregulated and I have all these sensations, my body, I don't like. Correct. And that's because you're a biological being <laughs> and you're supposed to have these things happening in the present moment. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong. If you feel scared when there's nothing to be scared of. That curious what I am is an animal sitting here breathing, feeling these sensations. And as long as I don't make the narrative out of them, the sensations change and they will start to reflect a more accurate picture of your immediate reality. It's just time and practice. Simple, 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 but really deep. So what did you get about that one? Sounds easy, does hard, right? Yeah. <clears throat> simple concept, the hardest thing you'll ever do. And so I, 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 so it can drive people to madness. It can drive people to the brink of suicide and it drives them to addiction, workaholism, sex addictions, all of the, all of these things that drivens, you know, are, we're trying to escape into a different reality. That's the greatest line I ever heard at an AA meeting was an alcoholic or a driven spends an eternity trying to escape from a reality that never existed in the first place. Yeah, that's a that's a real pickle right there. <laughs> that is a pickle because it's we're wired to feel like we're living in a scary, hard, dangerous world. And it's not. It's not. You know, there's there's nine billion of us or eight billion of us on this planet. We quadrupled our population in 120 years. <laughs> it's it's we figured out the survival thing. But the eight, eight percent or six percent of us that are feeling like we're not enough, turn that and force the outer world to fit our inner world. That is that narrative of self. And what I do is this identity piece is flip that. The outer world, the world of objects and things and intuition is where safety is. My inner world of thinking and feeling is not an accurate representation of reality. And that, that's called humility. And that humility piece combined with this understanding of identity frees us from the self. And in Zen, we talk about, you know, how the, the sense of boundary between self and other or subject and object seems to fall away. Very common, Dojin, all the great Zen teachers, all the great, you know, what the hell are they talking about? What they're talking about very simply is this division between the monkey mind and the impulsive elephant or the, the body and this third element of the observer. And the distinction between those three fall away. 
I'm not just thinking, I'm not just sensing, and I'm just not observing. I'm doing all of those in equal balance. That's the classic definition of flow. It's all happening at the same time. Yes. <laughs> Everything is happening at the same time. And so the practice or getting beyond that and to actually make that happen. Talked about how it's it sounds easy, but it's really, really hard to do that. So how do I how do I start on the path of it's, it's, first and foremost is understanding the context. I've been teaching meditation for 25, 30 years, 25 years for real. And it, it's the context of meditation. Most people believe that a meditation practice is a relaxation practice. Couldn't be anything farther from the truth. You know, meditation is about presenting. And it's, it's not being in, it's being, be a, you know, I-N-G, presenting. It's not, you're never in the present period. The present is this constantly moving, unfolding, expanding experience. The neocortex, the parts of our brain that, that don't like that, they don't want to be in the present because they want to be in control. And in the present moment, there's really nothing to control. Well, so it wants to look it. backwards. It wants to look forwards. And thank goodness for it because it kept us alive. It keeps us alive. Otherwise, we'd walk into traffic. <laughs> and so it, it's, you know, the ego gets a bad rap, but the ego is an incredibly necessary, needed part of our human existence. It's the thing that helps us keep track of time. It's the thing that solves problems for us. It's just not who you are or what you are. It's a, it's a byproduct of thinking and feeling. So once you understand that, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> then you can meet the sensations in the body in a different way. Feelings, these sensations in the body, which aren't even feelings yet, there's just raw sensations, aren't problems to solve. And so you start to meet them and feel them and experience them, you would very quickly notice how they change. More importantly, if you're using your eyeballs and senses to anchor your awareness in the present, a byproduct of that is that the organism, the body will actually start to self-regulate towards safety and feeling better. And so the present moment is something most people experience as full of grace or peace beyond it's peace without having to work for it. The body won't tolerate that for very long. <laughs> it doesn't because that was my doctoral dissertation was self-sabotage. What we're trying to always do though, until you actually understand this context of meditation, what we're trying to do is match the outer world to our inner world. You wake up and you're feeling anxious today, by the time you make it to the kitchen after you take a piss, you have discovered 18 reasons to be anxious. <laughs> and so, For sure. 
It's a, it's a magic day in therapy when your therapist tells you you're full of shit, but we're all full of shit if we believe that underlying sensations in the central nervous system as an accurate reflection of my reality. What I'm saying in this podcast with you right now, it's not, it never was supposed to be. Most people's central nervous systems, what's going on inside their body is because of what's going on inside of their head. And so I'm anxious like hell. I would be too if I thought like you. I mean, it's, it's, well, let's change our thinking. It's not about changing thinking. It's about learning to feel the sensations in the body before they turn into thinking. Hmm. Yeah. And if you can do that, combined with this understanding that, you know, my either I'm going to attach my central nervous systems to reality or to my thinking. And I can attach it to my bookshelf and like, whoa, I got a lot of books. My feelings very quickly go, yeah, but they're out of order. They could be a little bit better organized. And all of a sudden, my central nervous system is looking at my books, feeling bad. As some extension of me that if my books in order, you know, my books were organized and they all look perfect and color coordinated or whatever, then it would be a reflection of how I too have my shit together. Very normal, common, <laughs> but those loops then, it's evidence that I'm not okay unless my books are in order. Where what I'm teaching very simply, it's the other way around. How do you feel or how do those books make you feel? I don't know, kind of up, down, left, right, nothing, a lot, something. There's no fixed or permanent sensation associated with those books. But man, I can get attached to certain ones of them that I really like. Oh, that book has more meaning because I'm projecting all of my emotion into it. But the book itself is inherently empty of any of those sensations. A lot of talk about emptiness in Buddhism, and that, that's very simply what it means. It's just we're, the world is a blank slate waiting for us to project our past and future onto it. If I can stop that process, question what I am, I'm an animal, present moment safe, I use my eyeballs to scan the world, orient to the present, my central nervous system, will a byproduct of that calm down. Well, with my central nervous system will say, yeah, don't drop your guard too any more than that, don't drop it, don't drop it, don't drop it. If you drop your guard more than that, the world will become less in control of you and you're, you know, you're not ready for it. And so that's the battle. <clears throat> I can attach myself to the reality, feel a little bit better. <sighs> Milliseconds to maybe two seconds. <laughs> if I'm having a good day, a negative thought will come in trying to get my central nervous system back jacked up into this normal tense range that I've lived in my whole life. Take a breath, let that <clears throat> thought go, reattach to reality, reattach with my eyeballs open, eyes wide open to what's going on around me. Half a second later, a thought comes back in, <laughs> then, but the, the practice is that, letting go of the thoughts 
and attaching them to reality. So it's recognizing and, and, and catching that feeling of whatever it is, anxiousness, probably commonly. It is, it is. Human beings are so unbelievably addicted to fear and adrenaline and the negative that we are, we're very simply, yeah, we're adrenaline addicts. And, and if you're driven like I am, we are required for a pretty chaotic world. When things are really calm and things are really ordered, I don't feel like I'm attached to that world, like it, it's boring. And so <clears throat> catching my sabotage, catching this, oh my God, I've got to do something, I can't tolerate it. Honoring those sensations though, honoring those feelings, because I am driven. And my wife, <clears throat> well, if I was normal, I could sit and watch a two and a half hour movie with my wife, some chick flick, and it's like, nah. I can't do it. <laughs> that doesn't make me bad or broken. Sounds great. But... but, and so it, it is this dynamic interaction of, of the observer, you know, this, this third element in our consciousness, observing my thinking and my feeling again and again and again, <clears throat> not judging the sensations in my body, meeting them with curiosity questioning do they match my immediate reality and, and you get <clears throat> and you get faster and faster as you as you practice and you get more sensitive and more sensitive and it's the classic studies of all of this and i've been part of the psychology community mindfulness based psychology communities for 25 years again and i've watched it coming three or four different big waves through psychology. Oh my God, mindfulness. Oh my God, meditation. It's the greatest thing in the world. And then you do it for about six months or a year. And it's like, no, that, that actually makes me feel worse. <laughs> it, it, what it does, it wakes you up to how anxious you always are. Hmm. So your perceptions of anxiety go through the roof when you start meditating. It makes you feel worse. But actually what's happening is, is that your awareness of what this body is actually signaling you to do all the time is going up. Your actual physiological markers of anxiety are going down, meaning that you're catching it sooner. And that pause <clears throat> prior to, you know, assuming that everything we see is a snake. If I am anxious and I am scared, everything I see, I will, I will turn all the ropes in my world, all the sticks in my world into snakes. Self-confirming, self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. The opposite can also be true. And I've watched more people blow their lives up doing it the other way too. Oh my God, I feel so amazing. I feel so good right now. There's no snakes anywhere. They're all sticks. And that's lottery winners. Hmm. Lottery winners, all of a sudden, there's no more snakes in my world and I can buy everything. And, 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 and all of a sudden, two years later, their world's full of snakes again. And we're all stuck in that dynamic. Whether it's January at the gym, 
oh my God, I'm going to get a six pack this time. <laughs> Come February, it's like, nah, it ain't happening. Because the, the biology of change is this, this capacity to actually meet the sensations in your body with curiosity rather than assuming they're true. Hmm. Easy rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> it's easy to say. But when I walk through the door, my wife's eyebrows are up. Kids are crying. Dinner's not made. And she's looking at me like, what the hell did you do now? It is really hard to not defend yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's just, <clears throat> but I have, I know, and I can see after the fact where I could have done something different. I love it. Powerful stuff, doctor. Well, I appreciate you coming back on. This simply means that we're going to have to do it a third time here sooner <laughs> rather than later to, 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 to keep digging into this stuff. But until then, uh, where can people get a copy of driven? So all things, Dr. Doug is at I am driven.com all one. And it, um, yep. Audio book there, written book there, got an assessment that you can take. Um, it's a real assessment too. It's not a lead gen assessment. I, I spent a bunch of time, spent a year on it. It's 50 questions, had it nationally normed. So you can compare what you are compared to a national representative sample. Um, a lot of that coming out of my own imposter syndrome, making sure this is real. It's, and it is, we are driven there. It's a real thing. This is not something I just made up. So it's good. I appreciate your time, George. It's yeah, fun. love it. Well, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Dr. Doug your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Pick up a copy of Driven, Understanding and Harnessing the Genetic Gifts, shared by entrepreneurs, Navy SEALs, pro athletes, and maybe you. And go to imdriven.com, pick up a copy of the book and take that assessment and find out if, in fact, you fall into that small group of people that Dr. Doug has been talking about today. Thanks again, Doug. You're welcome, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together.